Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Safronis. On this special Encore episode, we revisit the topic of ensuring multilingual learners have highly qualified teachers to help them achieve their highest aspirations. We're joined by guests Amaya Garcia and Alexandra Manuel. The lack of teachers who have the training necessary to effectively support multilingual learners has been plaguing school districts across the country for years. The pandemic has only exacerbated this problem, putting multilingual learners at greater risk. We will be addressing this challenge at our upcoming Impact 2021 virtual conference, a free event that will take place over three days on December 6th, 7th, and 9th. New America's Amaya Garcia, one of this episode's guests, will be moderating a panel from school districts and organizations around the country to discuss how they are responding to this challenge and the plans they have moving forward. Amaya will also provide perspective on what the research data is telling us. If you're interested in joining us for Impact 2021, please visit our website at elevationeducation.com slash elcommunity and join our community. We'll send information on sessions and registration on our weekly community brief emails that all community members receive. In the meantime, here are some questions we'll explore in this special episode with Amaya Garcia and Alexandra Manuel. You'll find both of their bios in our show notes. What are Grow Your Own or GYO teacher programs, and how are schools, districts, and states using them to address the bilingual teacher shortage? What can we learn about these programs from those who have experience implementing them? What supports do Grow Your Own teacher candidates and schools need to help them thrive? We discuss these topics and much more with Amaya Garcia and Alexandra Manuel. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. Hello, Amaya and Alex. Thanks for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Hi, great to be here. Um, this is Alexandra Manuel um, in Washington State. Hi, this is Amaya Garcia from Washington, D.C., and also really excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. We are well represented with Washington, D.C., Washington State, and Boston, Massachusetts, all around the country today. Talking about um, what I think is a really interesting topic and what I think our audience is as well, which is these um, grow your own programs or GYO programs as they're kind of as they've been uh, come come to be known. I want to start off by just giving listeners a little primer on on what it means that grow your own terminology um, and what EL or DLL related problem uh, it might help to solve. So um, Amaya, could you start by kind of level setting that with us? Sure. So you'll see the term grow your own used in a lot of different ways by a lot of different people. But from New America's perspective, it has a very specific definition. And for us, grow your own programs are partnerships between educator preparation programs, school districts, and community organizations that recruit and prepare local community members to enter the teaching profession and teaching their communities. So essentially, The heart of Grow Your Own is that you're taking people who live in the community to work in the community's schools and who are going to be staying in those schools for the long term. And that can be done by having really strong partnerships between different, you know, institutions of higher education, different school districts, and community-based organizations because they can design the program to actually meet the needs of the people in the program and of the community. Well, it makes total sense, it seems. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then in terms of what 
the promise of Grow Your Own for um, English learners and dual language learners is that we have are lucky enough to have a lot of bilingual individuals living in our communities. Either they could be working, you know, as your school bus driver, they could be the teacher assistant in your classroom, and they just need a little bit of extra support to become a teacher. And so Grow Your Own seems like a good vehicle to help us grow the bilingual teacher pipeline in order to better serve those needs of the English learner community. Absolutely. Alex, would you add anything there to Amaya's um, definition or, or description? Um, I just think that one of the pieces that's really been critical for us is thinking about collaborative selection and thinking about um, when you are identifying programs or sorry, identifying candidates for Grow Your Own programs that there is a connection between both um, the district need and also the um, design of the program to effectively prepare that person to then meet that district need. And so that includes both like the connection between sort of uh, uh, the demand for certain types of teachers and then the, the supply of how do we design programs that really help to meet those needs. Um, and those, I think, uh, having that happen within the context of a community um, so that you aren't leaving the community, but you're actually utilizing the resources and assets that are existing within different institutions to support the preparation of a candidate. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine that that requires kind of a lot of work to sort of identify the needs, identify who those people are, and then, like you said, design and identify, uh, or I'm sorry, design programs that will be fitting both to the candidates and to the programs that they are um, hopefully going to be serving. So. I guess my next question following up to that, um, Alex, would be, you know, how are policymakers and states approaching these Grow Your Own programs? Are there sort of typical steps that need to be taken to get them off the ground or are different states doing it in, in many different ways? Or is there one way that you feel like works pretty well? Well, I think every state has different sort of assets and policy or incentives that they have structurally already that exist. I think part of what we our approach has been is to say, well, what's the relationship between these? Um, how do we help to, you know, if our end goal is more grow your own programs that are um, producing, you know, dual language teachers and uh, special ed teachers and teachers that um, are of high need, how do we use our strategies of of policy and incentives to, to get to that place. And so, you know, so, uh, most states have alternative routes to certification. Um, these are job embedded programs where you're learning how to teach while teaching. Um, we have really focused our alternative routes on growing our own educators. And we see that, you know, the both identifying who those candidates are, supporting um, them, whether they're paraeducators or emergency certified teachers or parents and families, uh, you know, that are seeing themselves first as, you know, a substitute or a parent, um, really helping or, or also high school students that are interested in becoming teachers. Um, it's really identifying, helping people to navigate that pathway and then also letting them know about the resources and supports that they can get, the mentoring supports that they can get um, along the way. And then, you know, um, each state, I think, has approached that differently, but I would say each um, state has a combination of programmatic work, um, policy that sort of initiates and, and drives some of that work, as well as incentives or grant programs that actually distribute dollars to support that collaborative work. Great. Am I anything to add to that?
Amaya, are you still are you still with us? Oh, sorry. No, that was a great overview. Okay, great. Well, I do have another question for you coming up right now. And that is like, my assumption is that most of the potential teachers in these pools, like the grow your own pool are not certified teachers there. Maybe they're paraeducators. Um, Alex just mentioned that in some cases, they're family and community members, or perhaps they're even high school students. So if that's the case, if they're not certified, how are districts or how should districts go about making sure that the educators they bring on are qualified and certified to teach? So that's really the, the crux of what's going to happen in a high quality GYO program. Um, first, they're going to identify the candidates that they're interested um, in having work in their school. So maybe for it's bilingual candidates, right? And they're going to do kind of an assessment of we have this many bilingual paraprofessionals. Well, how many have, you know, an associate's degree? How many have a bachelor's degree? So you can understand kind of like the level playing field where you're going to be starting from in terms of the skills you're going to need to develop and the credentials you're gonna to need to give them to get where they need to be to be at the head of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the partnerships come into is you find a, either a community college and Washington State has kind of a, a very interesting approach where they have some community colleges actually that can give bachelor's degrees now. So you don't have to worry about doing that transfer from a two year to a four year institution. Um, and so you find that partner institution you find the district, you get the district, you know, together with them, they kind of come to an agreement of what they're going to be teaching and how they're going to focus the coursework. Because since a lot of these programs are sort of job embedded, you want to make sure that what the individuals are learning in their classes is relevant to what's happening every day in their classroom. One criticism of, you know, traditional teacher preparation is that it's very removed from the day-to-day -day practices of the classroom. Yeah, Grow your own kind of that. flips that on its head. Yeah. Grow your own flips that on its head, right? Because you have these jobs you're working while you're in this program. And so you're seeing the reality every day. Um, so it's really important that they make these connections. And then, you know, you put them in on the, on the, on the, in, on the pathway, you have them take the coursework, you have them, you know, they can either do like a residency where they're like working, you know, on the job with a mentor teacher, um, so they can kind of learn the skills as they go. And then at the end of the day, they're held to the same expectations, right? They have to pass the same licensure exams as anybody else, right? And so there's no kind of shortcuts to actually meeting the credential that you need to become certified to teach. You might have a shortened pathway, so maybe it'll only take you two years instead of four years to get your degree, but at the end of the day, you're being held to the same expectations as any other teacher in that district. Sure. And like you said, I think there's a huge value in having um, these these teachers or future teachers being embedded, you know, doing the work while they're actually um, going forward and getting their certification. I mean, I think you know, teacher education, when it's removed from the classroom and the place where it's happening, um, can be, I'm not going to say detrimental, but but it certainly doesn't do uh, future teachers any favors when they're not actually embedded in the work that they're doing, and specifically when they're um, in, their, in, in their own communities. Um, Alex, I wondered if you had anything to add there about, uh, you know, how, how, how they're going about making sure the teachers they bring on are qualified from your point of view in Washington. Yeah, so I mean, in our state, all programs have to align to the same standards and our standards are competency-based. And so, um, you know, really what we're talking about and what we've, the kind of area of focus that we've really tried to grow and develop is that we believe it's really critical and important to design programs um, that can absolutely meet standards um, that, um, that we set, but in ways that are focused on that job embedded learning 
and that are really focused on, you know, these, these, um, these educators are looking at um, multiple designs within Grow Your Own programs. So some Grow Your Own programs pick up on students that have been in high school teacher academies and others are working with paras that are then on the pathway to become teachers. And others are working on post-baccalaureate certificates where they're actually going, they already have a degree and they're now trying to get the certification components. Um, so even within Grow Your Own programs, there's the ability to differentiate. And again, I think it starts with what are the most important needs of that community or region. And one of the things that um, I think we've grown as well is that like we have now, I think if, you, if we looked at five years ago, we had the majority of our programs in the state were master's degree programs. And now we're seeing a lot more uh, bachelor's degree programs. Our community colleges are actually offering bachelor's degrees of applied science in teacher certification. And those are also seen as alternative route programs where they're doing a year-long residency and they're engaging folks that um, are building off of early learning um, associate's degrees or um, paraeducator associate's degrees. So there's a lot of ability to differentiate even within this grow your own um, pool, but they all lead to that same certification. Sure, and it sounds like there's just so many pathways to go about doing this, particularly when there's community colleges involved that might be able to be a little bit more flexible than your traditional um, programs. And what a great benefit is that those community colleges are now offering bachelor's degrees. I mean, when we talk about, uh, you know, keeping our educator or getting our educators from the communities that they live in, and they're likely going to be staying in, that must be just a huge benefit to have that, uh, those bachelor's degrees coming out of community colleges. Yeah, I think it's been a, um, a big deal. Um, we actually, I mean, starting with policy, you know, uh, the legislature said, you know, bring non-traditional programs into the space, including community colleges and uh, regional service districts, could be districts themselves, others. Um, and through that, as well as, um, you know, providing like supportive incentives, both to candidates and programs and districts, um, you know, that has led to some really interesting things around, um, being really responsive to, to needs. So we have uh, several dual language, you know, programs that are producing dual language teachers, some from the paraeducator ranks, kind of a para plus role, residency, you know, focused to become a teacher all within the same community um, happening at a district with the uh, prep program partner. We have community colleges that are saying, this is critical and important. We're tracking people. They're all going to come out with this, you know, ELL and dual ELL and um, you know uh, elementary. So we have a lot of um, of the ability to then I think be nimble with this mm -hmm. these vehicles and say how what do we actually need? How should we be? Um, and and part of that has been for us to see the linkages bet between both. Um, you know, trying to create a more diverse educator workforce as well as address educator shortage. And so saying like, these are actually connected, like part of what we're thinking about is when we talk about addressing educator shortage, we are talking about one of the shortage areas in addition to demographics and um, in addition to, um, you know, subject matter shortage is the diversity of our educator workforce. Yeah, I, I just, there are three, three words that you said that, that I just like wrote down as you were speaking were nimble, diverse, and shortage. I mean, like, you know, yeah, you, I think a lot of these higher education institutions that are, uh, that are offering, um, you know, teaching credentials or education degrees, 
are not very nimble in my experience um, in terms of what they're able to offer for flexibility and being able to respond to the needs of various communities. And I love it what you said about the shortage and the connection between the shortage and the diversity. And I just feel like you have kind of this ecosystem in a community where they're kind of feeding off one another. They can easily communicate. They can make changes when necessary. Um, so assuming that's that's all right, I think we have, and please tell me if it's not, but I think we have like a baseline of what um, what components grow your own programs need to be successful. I'm curious, and I'll go to UMI for this one, um, what, where these programs go wrong, if they do, if you've seen that, and what you'd sort of recommend people look out for when they're, when they're setting these programs up. So first, I guess I'll ask, was I right about the nimble, diverse, and shortage thing? And second, I'll ask you to answer that question. I would say yes, uh, you're spot on with that observation. Um, I think that we know that traditionally teacher prep has been seen very as a very rigid process. And what's interesting about these GYO pathways or even alternative certification pathways is that they inevitably involve traditional teacher prep, right? So traditional teacher mm -hmm. preparation programs find themselves in a position where they're having to change their model to meet the needs of different customers, right? So you still have, can have a program uh, that has a traditional four-year pathway, but within that same college of education, guess what? They have a grow-your-own-pathway that's a two-year approach for these other kinds of candidates, right? So they have to be able to navigate those differences and be nimble in that process, right? Because you have to be able to realize that maybe the, some of the people are entering through GYO, they need specific supports and services that a 21-year-old college student doesn't need, right? right they need right. you to help them navigate the testing requirements to get into the program. They need you to figure out how to enroll for your classes. They need your help in how to communicate with professors, all those kinds of things that non-traditional students need. And so I think Grow Your Own is just a really interesting example of how these different models are really putting pressure on teacher preparation programs to change, right? Mm -hmm. And to be creative about how they offer their services. Um, I'd say in terms of where Grow Your Own programs go wrong, there's a couple of things that kind of stick out to me. One is programs that only give out money. If all you're going to do is give out a scholarship to somebody, that's great and that's a great support for someone to have. But what we've seen and what I've heard is that Grow Your Own candidates need much more than just money. They need wraparound supports that's going to help them through the entire process of recruitment, preparation, and even induction within their first years in the classroom. So some things that work for that are, you know, bringing people in as cohorts, offering the scholarships, but also offering, offering licensure uh, test prep, you know, navigating the college admissions process, navigating the hiring process, because some of these programs are designed so that you're working in a district while you're in the program, but you have to get hired by that district first, right? Right, right. And that's the whole process in and of itself. Um, so that's kind of one of the biggest things. The other, I think, are programs that try to do too much with too little, right? Yeah. So you might have a program and it might have like four different tracks and they're kind of are all a little tangentially related, but they're not, you know, they're not done in like a cohesive way. And so you're kind of inevitably having to like skip steps or someone's kind of getting the short end of the stick most of the time because the program is just too broad and too big. Um, and I'd say the other uh, issue is also to the extent to which um, the pathway is structured, right? So again, it kind of goes back to if you're just giving a scholarship versus whether you're giving more support. 
does that person, when they enter that program, understand what, what they have to do in order to get to the end of the program, right? They know all the classes they have to take. They know the practicum requirements. They know all the tests they have to take. That really matters, right? You have to give people a sense of what they're walking into because these are rigorous programs. If you're yeah. going to work and go to school at the same time, you need to know what you're signing up for. Oh, I, d- I did it and I had no idea what I was signing up for. It was brutal. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's part of what's great about Grow Your Own is because they're smaller scale. These are not huge scale programs. Right? We're talking like cohorts of 20 to 30 people. You're able to give more of that one-on-one um, advice and you're able to kind of really help them understand what they're signing up for, um, which I think is huge. Right, right. Well, you know, you know what, since we're talking about needs here, you know, that, that it's more than just sort of scholarship money and, and you can't do, try to do too much, um, you know, and you need to have a good structure. I, I want to shift gears a little bit to, um, you know, we're talking mostly about in, on this podcast and in our work, we're, we're concentrating um, on sort of multilingual teacher candidates. So you talked a little bit about some of the supports that they need, but are there like specific supports that they need that you haven't mentioned? And if so, what are the best ways to provide them for those um, multilingual teacher candidates? So one of the biggest supports that they need actually, which I alluded to is actually test preparation. So if you look at the licensure exams, so one people lots of times have to take an exam to just get into a teacher preparation program. That's just part of it. And Alex Alex can talk more about how Washington state is trying to address this issue. Um, And then they also have to take exams when they, you know, successfully complete the program. Those exams are given in English. Um, and there are people who speak English as a first language who have a hard time passing those exams. So you I'm can imagine what it would be like if English isn't your, your first language. So when you talk about the kinds of tutoring supports, you, you need to give tutoring supports, but some programs even feel the need that or think about, do we have to give a little bit of um, sort of English as a second language prep as well, right? But the, I, there's an irony in all of this, of course, because a lot of the teachers that you speak with will say, but why do I need to pass these tests in English and I'm going to be teaching in Spanish? I'm not even teaching in English, right? Why does my ability to do these tests in English even matter? And they don't find the tests are culturally responsive to them because they're like, I grew up in Chile and you're asking me about the history of Texas. I don't know anything about the history of Texas. And what does it have to do with my ability to teach in kindergarten, right? Yeah. But I think it, a lot of what the challenges point to the larger like issues and weaknesses within teacher and licensure and certification writ large, right? It's a pretty broken system. Um, and states need to start thinking about, well, how can we try to remedy some of those issues? I think the other is that if you're coming from another country and you had some higher ed in that country, you need to get your transcripts evaluated. Someone, you need to send it to a secondary organization. They need to say, yes, those classes are legitimate. You can count them at your university. That's an expensive process too. And that takes time. So people need support doing those kinds of things. Um, I think we also have heard a little bit about just the way that um, professional learning even is structured here. Um, so everything's kind of done in English. And again, if you're not teaching in English and it's kind of not really your language, then it feels sort of not exactly what you need. Um, and so those are some of the supports that I that I think about is that um, you really want to make sure that you're attending to the linguistic challenges that are just inherent in being, you know, having English as your second language. 
Um, and I think this is actually a really big issue too if you, in the early childhood workforce because the early childhood workforce for the most part is much more linguistically diverse and racially diverse than like K-12. Mm-hmm. But in this push that they have now to kind of professionalize the profession and get these degrees, you hear these conversations about, oh, but just like, like academic challenges and all these issues, but no one's kind of talking about the issue of language, right? And what it means when you have a very linguistically diverse workforce, you have all these expectations for them and how that Im- will impact that diversity moving forward. And so I think those are just some of like the, the policy considerations, like is it possible to take licensure exams in another language? Does that, is that an option? How would that look, you know? Yeah, well, you know, people don't talk about the language, but we're talking about it here, which I'm glad, which I'm glad about. Yeah. But you know, you mentioned like three main things just just to review a little bit. I mean. I can understand the, the transcript thing. I can understand the professional learning, you know, in terms of these are systems that are in place. They aren't necessarily bad systems. They're just that we need to support these people um, as they come into the profession. But boy, the, the testing situation, I feel like it's a whole other podcast episode and I don't want to get too deep into it, but it's like, you're right. I mean, you brought it up. It's like, what, like we, it's a larger issue. Like are these, is, is some of the content on these tests on these assessments really necessary? I mean, hopefully um, this will, I don't know, dig up or resurface some of these larger issues because I can see the other ones, but the test one, I just, it's just hard to kind of pour resources into something that doesn't even seem to make sense anyway, but I digress. <laughs> but, but Alex, you should tell them what the, what's happening in Washington. Right I was now just going to go there. Thanks for the segue. Go for it. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, I would add that like, so, you know, that I work, I'm the executive director for the professional educator standards board in Washington. We are the licensure agency. And I think there are, um, pieces of this that certainly, as we think about who we want in the workforce, we have to think about kind of structures and policy that is supportive. And so one of the biggest things that I think we have spent a lot of time doing is um, as a, a board, um, my board, you know, came forward and said, you know what, we really need a work group to examine um, the testing barriers for particularly bilingual candidates and candidates of color. And so um, we spent a good um, portion of our last year really examining those and making recommendations at multiple levels. So at the legislative level, at the board level, because the board sets policy um, around workforce and also credentials um, and testing. Um, and also then looking at, you know, what should be happening in programs, what we should be engaging with in terms of with the vendor, um, and and then also what kind of further research could we be doing? And so those were, I think, really critical, brought folks from across the field together. Um, and one of the most significant recommendations was um, really after full examination of just data that really shows inequitable passing rates um, between cans of color and, um, and white candidates was to, um, to, to take steps to make um, what we call our basic skills test a formative assessment. Um, and so we just actually passed last week um, a new law that um, is then taking what was sort of a gatekeeper of requiring that basic skills test to enter a program um, to making that a formative assessment that all candidates will take, but um, will be used at the discretion of the institution to help inform what that candidate will need to be successful. Wow, um, that's so great. That's a major change for us. So, so I imagine that's a huge win. Yes, huge win, um, I think, um, and well-received, uh, really, I think, across the field. Um, I think part of that is, you know, we hope 
you know, immediately that we'll see a lot of candidates that just have been unable to pass, um, you know, a basic skills test um, to be able to um, be able to move forward and either connect with programs or become because it is a requirement for certification. Um, and, you know, a lot of, um, to Maya's point, you know, many people have said, well, you know, what's the relationship between the basic skills test and what it takes to become a teacher? Mm -hmm. And we think it's a component of helping a, you know, a program to decide where is that candidate and what yeah. kinds of supports do they need? But again, the focus on what kinds of supports do they need and not necessarily um, can or should they be in a program? Um, and so um, we are really excited about that. Um, and I also think we are um, continuing to explore exceptions to our subject matter tests um, because there have been other places where we have seen um, both the what Amaya mentioned around the need for additional time for bilingual candidates, which is something we've um, worked with our vendor to do, um, but also looking at, you know, if there are there are experts um, in these programs that are working with candidates um, and they believe and that they can demonstrate um, their skills in a subject matter area, um, is there an opportunity for some type of exception? And so more to come in that area of work with our board, but we're thrilled to see that um, the basic skills um, uh, test has uh, sort of changed um, to uh, a formative assessment and um, allows for more access for candidates. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's clearly that is the result of some really deliberate and intentional work to sort of figure out what was going on, as you said, over the better part of a year. Uh, so that being said, I'm curious, you know, what, what other two or three things have you learned uh, in Washington where you're sort of leading the charge on this, it seems, um, for, for what it takes to set up these, these programs? Is there anything else besides this, this testing win that you, that you just had that I think others can learn from that you would um, mention as, as sort of other um, pieces that would help others? Yeah, I mean, I think we have worked uh, hard to design culturally responsive curriculum for our teacher academies. So we've um, redesigned, we have a Recruiting Washington Teacher Initiative, and we have a focus on bilingual educators, um, a bilingual educator initiative, um, and really thinking about critical alignment between what high school students might be doing, whether it's in CTE classes or ELL classes, and around um, excitement and interest around becoming teachers, um, connecting that with the seal of biliteracy, which is something we have and other states have, yep. um, and, and thinking about how do we get people excited about becoming an educator in their community. And, and the reality is some communities have very few, if any, bilingual teachers. They might have much more maybe diversity within their para ranks. Um, but the part of that is, you know, how do we get the next generation of students in lots of different types of classes um, where there's a teacher who has, um, you know, tremendous interest and enthusiasm, how can they be um, provided a curriculum and, that can really engage with the, you know, the culturally responsive um, uh, teaching and engage with, you know, uh, culture and identity as assets and, and the development of uh, the pathways to become a teacher since that has changed um, quite a bit. Um, and I think another piece that we've been very focused on is then building those partnerships around alternative routes and bringing new providers into that space um, and also encouraging existing providers, colleges, universities, and others to really focus on particular um, high needs areas of shortage um, 
and um, to support, you know, really thinking about what is what do non-traditional students need, and um, so both targeting um, what districts need in terms of shortage and providing that support, and then also being able to provide credit for prior learning. Um, and, and then I think, uh, you know, part of our continued focus is that, you know, not every, you know, we have local control in our state, not every state is gonna um, do things the same way, but we have also tried to really focus on what is the local district infrastructure that's right. needed to support this, and that's an area that we're continuing to explore, you know, what we can do there in terms of both the tracking of different types of Grow Your Own candidates, um, the identification, the placement, um, and then the ongoing support, um, mentoring support. So those are things I would say we have, um, we have a lot of thinking that we have been doing. We've been piloting some of those learning pieces. Um, and then, you know, again, we always are looking at, well, what, what does the scaling that work look like? How can we involve more people in thinking about um, this in community and, and what, what, should that, what should that look like? So those are um, some of the pieces. I think the other one is that we've tried to really link the idea around shortages and addressing educator diversity, um, that we're not just talking about subject matter and we're not just talking about demographics in terms of location, like rural and remote. Um, we're also talking about the, the actual demographics of educators um, and, that that, and the language skills, um, which we think are critical to addressing. Um, future needs in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to call out quickly, you know, that you mentioned the seal of biliteracy. I'm glad you did. That That is something that we've talked about. We've done a couple episodes on it on on the podcast and featured a bunch of articles about it. I feel like that's like, um, really has a, a lot of traction right now. Um, and it's something that, that I feel like uh, districts and policymakers and state agencies are using um, as kind of an end game for students and a way to really um, it's sort of democratized maybe is not the best term, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, what it means to be sort of uh, biliterate, to, to be bilingual, to, to, to be proficient in two languages. So just wanted to call that. I don't know if you have any response to that, but I'm glad you mentioned it because it's something that I feel like has been really powerful. Yeah. I mean, I think we have seen that grow um, in our state. Like I think of um, my own daughter's, um, uh, high school graduation and seeing all these students that were being honored um, in a diverse district for having those skills. Um, what I, I'm hoping that we will continue to see growth in is that connection between what what else does that give you opportunities to do? Right. So, you know, yes, you have these language skills and that's wonderful. And how can you be also in a classroom learning about what it could be like for you to be a teacher, right? You know, so that um, you are really linking those and giving people a pathway to like, here's what's next and how you might use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, glad you added that. Amaya, can I just say something about uh, of course you can. Yeah. the feel um, in relation to English learners? Please do. I think it's become another kind of one of those equity issues though also and challenging us to consider those questions of like, who should be bilingual and who shouldn't? Like, who do we value bilingualism in? Um, and Amy Heineke, um, in Chicago has done some interesting work looking at the implications of the CLA literacy for English learners in particular, and found that it's sort of seen in a different way for those students um, than it is for monolingual English speakers. And right now we actually don't even, I don't think people even collect data on 
like if you break down like who's getting the feel, how many of those are like former English learners, how many like are current English learners. And so again, as much as like it's a really exciting opportunity to highlight the value and importance of bilingualism and literacy, it kind of still, we still need to consider what the equity implications are for English learners. Because I think traditionally English learners are have been viewed in this very deficit-oriented lens where their, mm -hmm. their language is actually seen as something that's going to hinder them. The CELA literacy turns that on its head in theory, but we have to pay attention to making sure that it's doing that in practice as well. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I'm glad you mentioned it. And I think if I'm not mistaken, actually Washington State <laughs> are doing really great things, it seems, because I think that they are at this point. And we uh, we, we had um, a podcast episode with two people from um, Washington State, from the state um, uh, Department of Education. And I think they are at this point beginning to track that information as to um, who is getting the seal and sort of at what point those, whether they are um, former ELs or, or current ELs are getting it. So I think there's work being done there, but I totally agree with you in terms of, you know, making sure that, uh, that we're sort of valuing each student who's receiving it um, the same way. And they themselves, as you mentioned, are perceiving it in the same way. Mm -hmm. So Maya, I have another sort of uh, question that might be uh, provoke a little tension here. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually excited to ask it because I think you're going to have a strong opinion about it. And that is, um, so I'm in a school district that sort of needs bilingual teachers. So why don't I just sort of look abroad to hire bilingual teachers from other countries? I mean, why wouldn't I take this approach? Uh, sure. So that is an approach that many districts take. Um, you will see that they're like Utah, for example, has like a really strong partnership with China to bring in teachers they need for Mandarin programs. A lot of states have partnerships with the embassy of Spain to bring in teachers from Spain. Mm -hmm. um, but one of my favorite things or ways of thinking about that issue is actually brought up by uh, Bernard Kuntz, who works in Highline Public Schools in Washington State. Um, when I was there researching the Grow Your Own program they developed um, to prepare bilingual teachers for their district. And he told me that the way that he thinks about that issue of hiring teachers from abroad is that it's just a Band-Aid, right? It's a Band-Aid to a much larger systemic issue. Um, it's like a temporary fix that's going to cover like the problem at the moment, but it's not a long-term solution. If you think about the way that it's those kinds of um, programs are structured, you're bringing in a teacher from another country for three years on a visa, right? So you're, you're making an investment in this person. You're sponsoring their visa. While they're here, you're paying their salary, you're paying their benefits, and you're also making an investment in their professional learning, right? But at the end of three years, that person is going to be gone and out of your system. So all the resources that you invested in that person have kind of been for naught. They were great during the time they were there, but now what, what happens? You, you're kind of losing that money. So why wouldn't you just instead invest in people who are already in your schools, in your community, understand the students, understand their needs, and help them develop and become the teachers that you need for the long term? I think the other issue when you bring in teachers from other countries is that just because I speak Spanish, doesn't mean that I'm going to culturally identify or understand the experiences of my Spanish-speaking students. Great it's point. It's much different to be from Chile, which I'm from Chile, and Alex is actually half Chilean too, so we got to give a shout-out to Chile. Um, <laughs> a place that's on my list to visit, by the way. <laughs> to be Chilean and grow up in the Chilean system than to come and work in Washington, D.C., where most of my students are from El Salvador, right, or Honduras. 
it's it's not the same, right? There's not necessarily like a cultural match just because you speak the same language. And so teachers who come from abroad have to not only learn the new system, the way that education works here, but they have to learn about their students um, and their cultures and their heritage. Speaking Spanish is not enough just to be like, you speak Spanish, cool. You're perfect for our school. Right. There's a process in place that needs to happen. Yeah. Go ahead, Alex. Uh, I was just going to add, I mean, I, I totally agree with everything Maya has said. I would add a couple of pieces is that like from a data standpoint, um, I think any state that's collecting data on that could tell you that the data around retention of educators that are coming from abroad is very low. Um, yeah, not surprising. Yep. Um, also, I think the cost, like if you do the analysis of cost of like growing and developing people within the community um, versus, um, you know, recruiting people from abroad. I mean, there, I think there's, there's a function around time that exists in certain in, and, and needs like, so, you know, we have certain districts that have set goals, like we want everyone in our district to be bilingual. It's another strategic plan. So being able to do that by a certain time, like, Similarly to what some of the things that we're talking about in terms of like we're seeing in our state more tribal schools growing and at the same time in terms of new schools showing up that are focused on um, tribal heritage and at the same time we keep saying to folks well are you paying attention to how are you going to get those educators and you've got to be able to think about part of the goals of um, establishing different types of pathways for students or support of like dual language or um, tribal schools or any of these things is is to have rich experiences with folks that have um, language skills and cultural skills and um, be able to support students in in that work and certainly we want all teachers to do that um, but at the same time thinking about it as a sum game traditional recruiting maybe international recruiting and also thinking about what are you doing to grow your own educators because it does say something, there are a couple of things that I think Amaya talked about there that um, I would even take further. One is that um, when you bring folks in from other countries, they really, not only do they not understand school culture necessarily, but they don't really understand the systemic racism that exists within schools and what is happening there and how they either contribute or don't contribute. And that has been one of the reasons I would say that a lot of districts have struggled with retention. The other piece is that they struggle with building community within amongst those teachers so that they see themselves as part of that community. Whereas when you think about Grow Your Own programs, the whole idea is you're embedded in the community and that's where you're growing and developing someone. Um, so those are things that I think um, are tensions that just naturally exist because of the timing. Um, and I think, think, so while, you know, folks are faced with lots of opportunities and then also how to address those. I think we, we would see that as how do you make that a sum game of, you know, traditional recruiting or out of country recruiting and also grow your own programs. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, not necessarily a terrible thing to bring someone in from another country and, and, you know, have them teach in here for a few years. I mean, a good, good experience for, for most people, but certainly not the, um, uh, a, a systemic change that we need and one that I think is best summed up by, by Amaya, what you said is a bandaid. I, I couldn't agree more. So um, I, I had to ask that question because I know that it is, it is a way that people are trying to sort of solve this problem. And I, I have feelings about it as well, but I wanted to hear it from you all. 
Okay. So as we wrap up here, um, I ask everyone that comes out of the podcast uh, to add to our ever-growing collection of books and resources. So Alex, I'm going to start with you and asking if there is a book or resource that has influenced you either personally or professionally that, uh, that you'd like to share. Sky's the limit. You can share whatever you like. Sure. Um, well, recently I've actually had my um, staff read uh, with, uh, as a collective group, we've read this book called Reading with Patrick. Um, and um, it's a book by Michelle Coe, um, who is uh, a friend uh, as well, but um, is about really her experience. Um, she's um, an Asian American woman um, who chose to become a teacher, go work in the Arkansas Delta um, with all African American students who'd never left the Delta. Um, and one of her students who she thought, you know, she had built different relationships with and, and, and really understanding like, what does it mean to be part of community? Um, which is, even though, yes, she is another person of color, but that was not her community at all. And what are some of the, the challenges and, and gaps even with navigating that and, and, and understanding the complexity of how different communities operate and are resourced or not resourced. And in this case, like rural Arkansas Delta, very under-resourced. Um, and so then seeing, you know, what happens following her student who ultimately, you know, uh, by accident kind of ends up committing a crime and um, goes to jail and seeing just how this plays out within the context of and the, the learning and the regressions of learning and the like hope and despair that kind of exists within becoming a teacher and not being really prepared to teach in a way that's um, meets the needs of, of who she's supposed to be serving and ultimately just the journey within that. So I think it's been um, real and, and she goes to and reads within reads um, in the jail with him for um, you know so, some years and just her reflections and um, really interesting uh, I think uh, kind of points out a lot of the need for grow your own programs and mm -hmm. And certainly, I think just the idea of thinking about language and culture and how um, how do we build connections and um, amongst that, and how do we um, you know learn about one another to ultimately support successful students. That's great, and that is a book that has not yet been mentioned. So I'm happy to add that one to the list. Amaya, you're up. So I would say educated, but I know that's probably been mentioned. So I'm going to say um, this book called $2 a Day, which talks about the poverty that exists within the United States and what it means to live on $2 a day. I think for me, that book was a very sobering um, lesson in what some families need to do to survive in this country and the kinds of experiences that kids in schools are having um, when they're not in school. And it speaks to the need for us as a society to like recognize this issue on a larger scale um, and to think about how that influences our expectations around what educators are supposed to be able to do within the confines of a school building, right? We expect educators to be these superheroes can address every issue. But when you look at a book like that, you realize that some things are really out of the control of a larger system 
And so how can you make schools a place that can actually provide some of the resources that kids aren't getting um, to help them, you know, develop the, the skills and competencies they need? Because it's not just about learning how to read and learning how to do math, right? It's about, do you have enough food to eat that day? Do you have enough clean clothes? Do you have all these kinds of basic essentials um, that are going to help you kind of move forward every day? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that book to me, I think, was just a really good reminder of the fact that income equality is a really huge issue in this country. We talk a lot about um, race inequality and all those other issues, but I think sometimes we overlook the fact that we have huge, you know, gaps when it comes to, you know, social class within this country. Yep, absolutely. And thank you for mentioning that book. Educated has been mentioned before, but it's worth mentioning again. So we'll add to the list. You get two for the price of one for that one. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll put $2 in the uh, $2 a day on that um, on the list as well. We'll put those um, on the post that goes with this at elevationeducation.com slash yellow community. Final question and probably the most important one given the sort of complexities um, and the density of the issue that we're talking about, which is really important. And that is how can people learn more about the work that you all are doing? Um, Amaya, I'll start with you and then I'll go to Alex. So New America has a website. So I work at a policy uh, organization in Washington, Washington, D.C. called New America. Which everyone who's interested in these topics should absolutely follow. I get your emails every couple weeks and it's great stuff. So I'm just going to plug that and you can continue. Yeah, so we we have a newsletter, which you can sign up for at New America. That's specific to English learners. But New America also studies education all the way from birth through the workforce. So we have lots of different resources. And we have a specific page on our website that's just all about Grow Your Own and all the stuff that we've done related to Grow Your Own over the past um, couple of years. Great. We will link to that. Alex, how about you? Yeah. So um, we have a website as well. Um, it's uh, pesb.wa.gov. Um, and on our website, we have a whole section that's sort of devoted to grow your own um, work, but we also have several reports. One um, I mentioned earlier about the testing barriers. Um, that report is on on there. Uh, We also have a report about Grow Your Own, and we did a couple of years ago a Bright Spot report um, highlighting some of the things that we saw as promising practices around the state. So that's also in there. Um, And we have lots of handouts and resources that we would welcome you to um, check out and uh, happy to share more. Great. And I looked through a lot of those resources before um, we had this uh, this interview and they were very, very good and very interesting to look at. So appreciate you mentioning those. We'll link to all that information. Um, and with that, uh, Amaya and Alex, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you about this. I know we could talk for another three hours, but um, we don't have the time. So hopefully we can follow up another time. But I just want to thank you so much for joining us um, and please uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.